Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Oddy. This week, we are continuing our series over the Ten Commandments, titled Foundational Truth for a Confused World. Enjoy. It's good to see everybody. Well, guess what? We're on the next to last day on the Sixth Commandment. How about that? No, no. No, no. We have to finish all the bad stuff, and then we can get to the good stuff next week. So, yeah, but I'm keeping my promise, so that's uh, kind of rare, I know. Um, but anyway, we're, uh, we're moving into that. Did any of you notice or read in the news This past week, the decision that the state of New York made on this new law. Okay, so that, again, I've been been encouraging you to think about the theology that is is moving in the direction away from conservative biblical theology. That's the way that you can make sense of this. Of course, we don't like it, but you can make sense of it from that perspective that the uh, inroads of uh, uh, liberal Christian theology, and, and to some degree, you start to wonder if it's just liberal and not Christian, you do, because, because Christian is based on the scriptures, but if you continue to erode the foundation, which is the scriptures, then at what point, where, at what point do you, are, can you not even say it's Christian anymore, much less certainly not conservative Christian? So this is kind of a a sad development. So basically what the, you don't know what the state, does somebody want to explain what the state of New York, the law that they passed and was signed into law this, this past week? Yeah. Jackie. They're allowing abortions up until the day the baby is born. What? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so the, again, there's some redefining of things going on. And this is how you, how you can make sense of this, that life in the state of New York is defined as after birth not up and to birth. Okay. So that's how life is defined. And then the other part of it is that, and we talked about this when we talked about the fifth commandment is that um, it used to be just that the idea would be that if the mother's life is in danger, meaning her physical life, that has now been redefined into mental life, mental health, emotional health. And then the new one on this law was economic health. Okay, so so again, we should we ought to be appalled by this. The Missouri Senate came out a couple of days ago with uh, our president came out with a uh, sort of official sort of statement reaction to it, condemning it, and 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 just simply saying that this is what happens when you move too far away from conservative biblical. It's just it, it's not to say that conservative biblical is the end all to end alls. It's just to say that that's your foundation. And when you start, you start knocking pieces off of the foundation, then w- w- at what point does it become uh, totally uh, absence of Christian? Good for the U.S. the uh, U.S. Catholic bishops to come out with a very public statement directed at Governor Cuomo, who himself is a Catholic, and to deal with the whole issue of where does your faith, the faith you have in the tenets of your religion, where does, where does, when that line meets up with the political decisions that you make or endorse, then at what point can you say, or can it be said of you that you're no longer Catholic? I mean, maybe in name you are, or in style you are, but maybe not in substance. So anyway, just to be aware, okay, just to be aware that when decisions like these are made, there's usually always a theology involved. A theology means how we treat the Bible, how we, what we believe about God, what we believe about how much does God's word inform what we do on a day-to-day basis, including the decisions that we make. Okay, so this is real. This is real. This is the world that we now live in. So and maybe have lived in all along. But, um, you know, the old uh, fable of the frog in the kettle, you know, that one. Okay, that kind of that kind of fits here is that gradually, 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 incrementally erosion occurs. And then it sort of hits a tipping point. And I think probably the tipping point got a lot of people's attention now. Yeah, May. 
I, I would just like to say that, you know, I think it's been very interesting that as some people are supporting uh, abortion mm -hmm. and they have made public uh, announcements and so on and they've gotten involved and become more aware of what actually is taking place, sure. it has affected them in a, in a, you might say, adversely in that they've had a change of mind because they they really have gotten in touch with what that abortion means. It's right. not it's not just here and gone, but it's right. the emotional impact mm -hmm. that that mother will carry really strongly for the rest of their lives. That's correct. And it will have the biggest impact there, but not to mention later on as the family becomes aware of what actually did happen. And I did see a piece on a TV the other night about a little girl, a little girl, young lady. And she found out that her mother had had an abortion and actually had considered one for her own birth, but had a change of mind uh, on the end. And, and I think that's just amazing uh, way uh, the Lord works through people. Right. And, and maybe even through all of our uh, discussions, you know, of these topics, making people aware of really, really what happens when abortion takes place. It's becoming a way of birth control as opposed to what it was really intended to right. originally be in cases of need. Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for that. That story, the other half of the story often does not get told. And uh, part of it sometimes is because of the shame and the stigma that people carry with them uh, as a result of abortion that they don't talk about it. So fortunately, we have people that people can talk to, you know, and it's not the unforgivable sin that thank goodness, but it's not certainly not something without consequence. And I think that that is often the the message that gets portrayed is that, well, um, aborting somebody is better than a backroom abortion. I mean, you know, it just it, it, it's the the amazing ways that we and the lengths we go to to justify what we do is quite uh, quite astonishing. Yeah, Carl. The American Family Radio Association, AFA, really, mm -hmm. uh, has a, a very dynamic program to counter this very direction, and it's it's called. The, what, I'm not sure what it's called, but it basically for twenty nine dollars, you can buy an ultrasound, and eighty percent of the women who go through the ultrasound and see the heartbeat. Yeah. Choose life. Sure. Sure. And so this idea that life is now defined only as after birth is ridiculous <laughs> when you think about it from that perspective. Yeah, less. So what we learned, having lost a, a granddaughter six days before she was scheduled to be born by C-section, we learned, and I didn't know this until recently, I mean, some told me that the death certificate that he had to sign off on is because she wasn't actually born was not a regular death certificate. And even in the state of Texas, it still has a fetal death certificate. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just one more uh, comment and then we can move on. So anyway, stuff is in the news, right? It's in the news. And usually it always gets reported after the fact. Not, uh, we, we don't hear about stuff leading up to it. You wish that there would have been more conservative Christian voices uh, in the lead up to that. And maybe there were, but probably not enough, you know, in states like New York, for example. Yeah. So when it passed, could you ex can someone explain who voted on it? I mean, is that a Congress in New York that voted on it? Just the mayor? It's their state law. So the governor signed it. I'm assuming their legislature passed it and maybe both houses kind of like, you know, every state has state senators and state uh, uh uh, reps. And so then there would have been enough. I don't know what the vote percentage was or anything like that. Maybe there's a way to discover that. But the pushback on this one is legit. It's legit. Yeah. So it's in it just again, just in the state of New York. But it the concern would always be that if in, in a state like New York, very often in California, kind of the same thing is that those are influential in terms of influencing a national sort of thought. Now, maybe it takes a bunch of years. Okay, maybe it does. But still, that's at some point, voices have to come up and say wrong. And I don't know. I don't know how that works in states. I'm not as 
um, smart in that area. Okay, well, let's get into then our uh, lesson again for Sixth Commandment. And where we're going to uh, where we're going to start is down here at marriage and divorce and remarriage. I think we covered all of everything from uh, last lesson pretty well. Um, and feel free to look at it there. Probably just it, just to say is helpful is in point B is again this idea of people that struggle with same-sex attraction that that's not the same as a person who gives himself or herself over to the lifestyle. So there is a there is a, a distinction between what I feel inside of me and what I do with it. Okay. And so somebody had asked the question last week for all of us, and this is probably true. It may be a generalization, but, but many of us have people on our own lives who, who have same sex attraction and, or who have given themselves over to the gay lifestyle. And that can be in your family. That can be in your circle of friends. I guarantee it's uh, folks uh, that you work with, you know, it's, it, they're, they're Christ, good Christian, great Christian people, even in the Christian church who struggle with this. And so when you know about it or when you, um, when it's made known to you, what are you supposed to do? How, how, what is a, a Christian response if you want to think about it that way? And so then there's five things. We just, I just kind of put five things in there is number one is that you love the person. Okay. Now there is a popular saying that Christians use a lot that just annoys the socks off of people who are struggling. So don't say it anymore. Do you know what I'm talking about? God loves the sinner, but hates the sin. If you want to get punched in the nose, that is the way to do it. Okay. So, so that's feedback that I've gotten on many things, but still love the person, right? And keep the door open for listening. Keep the door open for listening. And when I say listen, what I'm talking about, listen, is listen for the underpinnings of that person's thinking. In other words, what you're listening for is the theology of the person, their view of God, their view of the scriptures. You're listening for that. And you're also kind of listening for what is it that is leading them to make those decisions. So it's not listening from the perspective of gotcha, Oh, I know why, you know, it isn't that it's that you're trying to understand what is it that is drawing that person to this particular lifestyle or this to make these particular kind of choices. Okay. And in that kind of listening, then you're also asking questions to that degree. It's not so much saying, why are you doing this? That sort of puts everybody on edge, but it's, I'm trying to understand what is lacking in your life that you feel led to go this direction instead of that direction? Does that make sense when I say it that way? Okay, good. All right. Number two, stand by your biblical convictions. This isn't a time to go wishy-washy on what you believe. Number three, pray daily for yourself and the other person, right? Number four, seek guidance from conservative Christian support networks. And if you're not sure who that is, you can uh, text me or you can uh, message me and I can give you some. Okay. And then number five, be prepared for active pushback from an activist community. That's where it's going to come from. Okay. So let's see. That's why this isn't something that we can just stand by ourselves and, and, uh, and deal with. Because there's an organized effort in terms of uh, particularly the theological side. Uh, revisionist the theology is being created. And um, you want to be able to sort of handle that. And that's pretty tough to do by yourself. Okay. You with me so far? Okay, good. All right. So now let's get into marriage, divorce, and remarriage. So a very common practice today is that people live together outside of marriage and they're not, uh, and they're not married. All right. Very common. And even in the Christian community it used to be when I was a kid, there would be a few times when you would hear about somebody doing this and, and people would be aghast at the idea that it would ever happen in the Christian community. Now it's almost commonplace. It's not totally commonplace. It's just almost commonplace in, uh, in Christian community. And so there's lots of reasons 
that people give for, uh, for doing them. And I just came up with seven. There might be some other. These are all things I've heard, okay? And so this isn't like uh, I, well, I will support any of these, right? But it certainly is uh, common for people to say this. So the first one is we're doing this to save money for our wedding, all right? Now, that, that assumes that they're going to get married, and in that case, usually if they are, then that's what they'll often say is, well, it's, it's very expensive for two people to have two households. And so we're saving money for the wedding and the uh, uh, honeymoon. And so this is a way for us to do that. Okay. So that's what some people say. Another one is that to, we do it, we're doing it to find out if we're compatible. My personal opinion is that compatibility is overrated. And if you've been married more than 20 years, you know exactly what I'm talking about. All right, now, what, what would be the upside of thinking about being compatible with the other person? What's the upside of that? Do what? The longevity of the marriage. Okay, so we sort of look at other people that have been married 50 years happily, and we say, I know I was at that part. No, that's the goal. The goal is to be married 50 years happily in, in, in this life, okay? Obviously, in this life, all right, happily. So, because I've known people that were married 50 years, and they were not happy, and that was not a happy 50 years, all right? But they stuck it out. All right, so the deal with the compatibility, okay, what, what are we talking about when we say compatibility? What is that? If you're compatible with somebody, yeah, you would be like similar similarities, right? You know, you like the Rangers, I like the Rangers. You like the Cowboys, I like the Cowboys. I mean, it, it, there's some, some workability in terms of that. Is it nice to have that? Yeah, it's nice to have that, all right? But, but the longevity and the happiness, if you will, or fulfillment of marriage is kind of work based on maturity. It's based on how well you can work things out, how f- much forgiving you're willing to do. And how much asking for forgiveness you're willing to do. It's, it's, it's kind of those things, all right? So compatibility is nice. But oftentimes today, and this is true today almost, I wouldn't say exclusively, but I would say very, very common, is that people use online dating sites as a way to meet the person that they think that they would like to marry. And so if you've, have you, any of you ever looked at that? What is it that you do? You create a profile of yourself, or the self you want that person to like, (laughs) right? I mean, if it's online, my theory is if it's online, it's airbrushed. So, you know, I'm going to put the best form of me out there that I think will be attracted to the most people and whatever that is, right? But the problem is it's mostly compatibility-based. It's looking at similarities, uh, differences certainly it doesn't deal much with maturity and it doesn't deal much with skill sets and things like that 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 some of that has to come later all right so but that's what people say well we want to find out if we're compatible so that's why we want to live together um, the third one is our life and we can do what we want I think that's the core I think that's the core I don't want anybody telling me that I can't do what I want to do including organized religion because we know that organized religion is just a bunch of rules anyway, and that's all there is to it. All right, so I, th- that would be part of it. Uh, number four, to practice being married as a hedge against marrying the wrong person. Who's laughing over here? <laughs> I know, is it, but you know, that is a great fear of people today. I might pick the wrong person. And then I'm stuck with that person for the rest of my life. All right, there is that fear. Yeah. Okay, we need to, if we can listen up over here. Yeah, go ahead. I had a friend that I used to work with, and that was her exact statement. Yeah. She said, I need to make sure that we can live together before we get married. They lived together for a year. Uh-huh. They got married. Yeah. They got divorced five years later. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's, that's more common is that more and more yeah. of them saying, we need to see if we get if we can live together mm-hmm. first. Well, yeah. But the divorce rate has increased, so that that doesn't. It does not playing out. But what most people will say is, "Well, yeah, but that won't happen to me." 
And if I say, well, that won't happen to me, then I, I'm putting myself in a category that would be different maybe from the general general people. Yeah. Well, that one and number two, about both are compatibility issues. Yeah. And what we find, all of us that have been married for multiple years know that, Happily, God, yeah. that God puts together opposites. Pure opposites. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we have to tolerate it and learn to tolerate it. <laughs> <laughs> so Nancy, what do you think? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, isn't that ironic that we do? We attract, you know, and I often wonder if it isn't only that we attract the opposite, but the other person becomes the opposite. Just, <laughs> you know, I mean, you sort of a little homeostatic balance here, you know. It, the more that you root for this team, I'm compelled to root for that team. I mean, that's kind of the, you know, um, it's, here's an interesting little thing. So, so in church life, the relationship between a senior pastor and an associate is often like a marriage. So here's how this works, okay? So Pastor Coleman is across there, you know, uh, over by the pulpit. And I'm standing over here by the lectern during the hymn. And we're standing there. And do you notice how he sways? I'm compelled to sway differently. <laughs> and occasionally I will not sway at all. But there is this kind of movement, all right? And that's kind of how marriage works the same way. It kind of works the same way. That, you know, you do have to stand up for what's right, right? You have to do that. But it's just, it, it's the nature of how you do this. You can't be in competition as an example. Well, don't be surprised if we all start laughing during church when y'all start to <laughs> Well, you'll be observing what's going on, you know, because sometimes, and sometimes I'll do this <laughs> as opposed to this, because I don't want to be him. I want to be me, right? <laughs> so anyway, that's an example of that. All right. All right. All right. The second, the fifth one is there's peer pressure, the peer pressure of a hookup culture. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say hookup culture? Okay, most people would say, so what hookup culture is, is this idea that we separate sex from marriage. And so we just go have sex with each other even before we know each other's name. It's real common in college settings, but it may, and it may even be high school, I don't know. But in, in very often in, in some settings like that, uh, there are hookup parties and people gather together and they just want to have sex and then... Um, maybe I know your name, maybe I don't, maybe I have your phone number, maybe I don't, but it's just the idea of separating, uh, sex from uh, marriage. So what happens with this peer pressure is that sex before marriage is, is a big chunk of that, of course, but what in people's minds now, the new emphasis is on being committed and you hear people say that all the time now is, well, it's okay if you're in a committed relationship. But commitment does not mean marriage in that view. We're in more of a conservative biblical approach is that commitment is, leads to marriage, right? But marriage is still the ultimate commitment, okay? The sixth, the sixth one with living together is that if things don't work out, we can always leave. Now, is there emotional duress if people leave after living together? Yeah. But it's not the same as if you get divorced. It's not the same. So there is a little bit of I, I create an out for myself, right? If things don't work out, if we're not compatible, if, you know, if, if my needs are not being met, I mean, whatever is the phrase that people use, then, uh, then we can always leave. And then number seven, which again, I think this is a big player, is the fear of losing that person to somebody else, particularly if sex is used as the uh, leverage, okay? If, you don't, if we don't have sex together, well, then I'll go find somebody that will have that with me, right? And so the fear of losing that person to somebody else who is sexually active and then um, acting out of the fear 
of being alone. The fear of being alone is a major driver for a lot of the really dumb decisions that we all make. And if the fear that's there is that I will be all alone, the pain of being alone and feeling like you don't really matter to somebody else is enough of a driver to make a person or not make a person, but, but talk to a person or talk a person into making some very foolish decisions. And so people have been known in some sense to marry the wrong person. I, I hate using that word, but it's sort of this idea that marrying somebody that clearly is not good for that person abusive or something like that and keep going back to that person and you think why why would a person do that it's a complex it's a complex issue but very often the fear of being alone is really the the biggest driver in that and the inability to handle uh, that being alone okay and so you know that will sometimes uh, cause that in our Lutheran Church Missouri Synod there is a spectrum in terms of how pastors treat this. We all would agree, not a good thing. We would all agree uh, that sin is involved in terms of, particularly if sex is involved, which often, very often it is. Very rarely do people live together and not have sex together, okay? That's just kind of almost a temptation that's too, uh, too much to overcome, all right? But the spectrum in Missouri Synod is regarding if will a pastor marry a couple who is living together, or will a pastor decline that, uh, that wedding until uh, that couple separates uh, and lives separately? That's the spectrum. And so even in our area up here, there's a wide range. So do you want to know what I do? I work with them. And I'll do the wedding. Now, why? You know me pretty well. Why would I do it? Because you'd rather keep the door open. Yep. If you don't do it, there's a real uh, almost guaranteed possibility that the, the couple will do what? Turn away from the church. Yeah, they'll turn away, but they'll, they'll, they'll go to a JP or they'll go someplace else where then there's no voice, that voice or my voice, if you want to call it that, is not available later on in their relationship when all the differences that Carl pointed out earlier start showing up. <laughs> and I want to be, I want to be, or at least be considered to be a voice in there. Okay? Now, what's the risk of my doing that? That you condone it. Yep. That it's, it'll come off sounding like, well, you condone it. And that's, that's a line that I, that I have to be aware of and that I have to walk. But I'm, I'm willing to do that because I know that three to five years into that relationship, the wheels will come off. And I'm smiling when it does. Because then, see, what happens is the proverbial honeymoon is over with, so to speak. Reality is now setting in, right? And the other thing is that when I meet with a couple who are living together and they want to get married, is I spend a lot of time talking about the difference between living together not married and living together married. Now, think about that for, from that perspective. What is it that is present after you get married and you're living together that is not so present if you're living together and you're not married? What? There's a legal aspect to that. There is that. There's also the vow that that person takes in front of God and everybody else. So I liken it to pressure. There is pressure when you marry that is not present so much when you don't marry. Anybody disagree with that? Pressure. Pressure what? Pressure to what? Provide, protect, love, lead. There's a pressure there. Now, it's not unwelcome, right? It's part of the commitment of being together. It's all those kinds of things. But when you know that you can't leave... You can't just ditch it and go off somewhere else without it being a major issue. There's a pressure there. And I think that that pressure in a very good way, in a very good way, is part of the difference. And so I like to talk about it from that perspective. Okay. All right. Any thoughts about that? I, I think the vows 
are the things that, that in my marriage, in my, my way of thinking mm -hmm. things, uh, I not only made vows to Priscilla, I made them to God way before. There's I that part of it too. Yeah. yeah, vows to God and, he's talking about. Yeah. It's one thing to break a promise to a spouse. Mm -hmm. It's another to break it to God yeah. after taking it before him and others. Yeah. And then say, well, but, you know, mm -hmm. it's just not working out. Right. Right. The uh, the other part to and I've noticed this with people that get married versus people that live together and they're not married. At some point, the desire to change the other person kicks in. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that? And when people live together and they're not married, that is either delayed or it doesn't really show up at all. Because they're kind of like roommates. They're kind of like, well, we'll just put up with it. You know, it's okay. It's okay. But then after people get married, there's this sort of compelling interest in, in improving the other person. And that adds to that, that pressure aspect of that in terms of, well, how do we sort of work these things out? How do we kind of come together in, even if we are opposites, as Carl pointed out, or even if we are different in the way that we see things? Okay, so um, it's not a bad pressure. It's a good pressure, but it's that pressure of oneness. And the Bible talks a lot about oneness, talks a lot about the two will become one. The question, of course, is which one? So that's what we, uh, <laughs> there was a slight delay in that. You had to, you had to kind of think about that, but uh, you can mull that over and let me know next week uh, if you come up with answers. Okay, does that, you're with me? All right, good, good, good. All right, let's go to the next part. Pornography, we can talk a little bit about that as well. Our culture, through the influence of pornography, uh, whether, you whether you think about it in terms of like online pornography or just the way in which our culture has been so desensitized to sexualization, right? From commercials, TV, movies, online, whatever, 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 that it's almost in some sense what used to be when I was a kid shocking and appalling, you know, now is like everyday stuff. That tells you how far uh, down, uh, down the tube here our uh, culture has gone. So a way to think about pornography with respect to marriage, for sure, is, is vir a virtual adultery. And again, it kind of goes to this idea that, that everything online is airbrushed. So how can reality compare to that? And that's often the thing that's not thought about, is that what's on there is not real, in the sense that that portrays life as it really is, right? It's a fantasy or it's something that is simply, uh, simply uh, not real. It's seen as normative, though, by many people under 30. And that's kind of true across the board with many of these things that we would consider uh, some of these social theological issues. Many people, for example, under 30 today believe that there's no sweat with gay marriage. Pornography is seen as normative. Now, what's interesting about pornography is that that's how they feel until what? Until they get married. See, something happens when they get married, that sense of, of oneness and that sense of exclusivity. You know, I'm here for you, you're here for me. Well, then you bring pornography into the equation. Now there's a third party there, but the third party isn't real. The third party is, is a fantasy, so to speak. Okay. Most Christian men who are addicted to pornography started their interest at age 13 to 14, thinking that it was normal and harmless. Boys will be boys. The difference for a lot of men who are in my age group is that the interest was pretty much um, relegated to finding your uncle's or your best friend's dad's playboys in the uh, bottom drawer somewhere, it wasn't online. It wasn't on a device. It wasn't on a screen. And if you wanted to get pornography, you would have to go to the 7-Eleven and you would have to go up to that section of the magazines where all the magazines were covered up and it said, you have to be 18 or older in order to buy these 
or you have to be accompanied by a parent. (laughs) Who in their right mind is going to take their parent to go do that? I mean, but so what I'm saying is, is that access was limited. And not only was access limited, but nobody was rewiring your brain like is now happening with online kinds of stuff, device-driven stuff. So the 13 to 14-year-old, 8th grade or ninth grade kid, and what's interesting is that I've talked to uh, enough Christian men who struggle with this now as adults, they were introduced to it by another Christian friend, maybe at church camp or something like that. And again, it was seen as harmless and boys will be boys. But what turns something from harmless to addiction is repeatedly going back to it, repeatedly going back to it and using it then as a a way to medicate painful feelings, most of which have to do with being rejected by somebody or, or feeling alone or restless or something like that. Okay. So there, the, I think the current percentage of Christian men who have admitted, and that's kind of when, when they have these self-admission kinds of surveys, then you figure that that percentage is low because or lower than the, than reality. So the current estimate is anywhere from 40 to 70% of Christian men struggle with this on, on some level of one or the other. And again, you'd think, doesn't a person's faith inform that or prevent that? Not if it's an addiction. It just makes you feel worse. So the deal is, is that if somebody is addicted to pornography or a sex addiction of some kind, they can't beat it alone. They have to seek out support from a a community, a 12-step, a uh, Christian recovery movement, that sort of thing. And there are lots of those around. And if you have any concerns about that or if you want to visit with me about that, I'm happy to do that. Okay? We can do that. But there's a couple of resources here. One is called Pure Desire. You can go online and, and see that. Excellent, excellent, excellent books. And they also have online groups for somebody to be a part of where it's anonymous. And so there's no worry about, oh, somebody's going to know that I'm there. Somebody's going to know me. And, and so this is, that's a real excellent one. The other one is called Covenant Eyes, which is an online tool that provides for uh, filtering and blocking of, uh, of material that would be uh, considered pornographic. They also, that's a big enough company where part of their, their deal is that they're constantly looking at other sites in the internet and their resources to do that are way greater than us. So there's a number of guys that I know in around the U.S. that for which I am a uh, accountability person. So what that means is, is that Covenant Eyes, when, you put, when they put it on their device, it tracks where they go on the internet and it also tracks when they do it. And if something gets flagged, because either it was a a pornographic site or something like that, then I get a weekly report. And if there's, if the weekly report says so-and-so went to a, a site that was pornographic, then that is flagged for me. And then I have the opportunity to call the guy up and say, Hey, what's happening? So that's a, that's a nice advantage of, uh, of covenant eyes. And it's really an excellent, uh, excellent deal. Yeah. Mary Jo. Um, you skipped over E, and I was really waiting to hear you. Oh, did I? Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, so this was kind of interesting. Do you remember back in the day when we all had uh, DVDs? Remember that? Well, what came before DVDs? What? Videotape. So how did they decide to go from videotape to DVD? And who was driving that? Remember, there was a near HD, and then there was HD, and there was kind of this whole debate of which way we're going to go. And so Sony Corporation was greatly involved in which way we're going to go, which way we're going to go. And uh, the porn industry said, we're going to go HD. And any company that did not go HD was going to lose a lot of business. So a financial decision was made to move in that direction. And Sony wasn't the only one, but the economic reality of a $70 billion a year industry. And that's what the pornographic industry was uh, 10 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, 70 billion. So, you know, 
The economic realities can sometimes drive industry to go a certain direction. Okay, so it's not the only player, but it was a, it was a player. Yeah. And actually taking technology back and stuff, the whole development between the VCR itself. Yes. Was also pornography. Because Hollywood and others weren't producing or allowing any kind of tape that wasn't generally available. Uh -huh. It was the pornography industry that generated the tapes and needed a market. Yep. They needed to be able to let people play them at home instead of having to go down to the right. peep show or whatever. Right. It drove the same kind of thing. It was the same sure. thing. So accessibility as as much as we love the fact that nowadays through technology we have accessibility to almost anything we want, the pornographic industry is exploiting the heck out of that. And their interest is in getting seven-year-olds hooked on the Internet. Not necessarily pornography, but if you can get a seven-year-old hooked on the Internet, then it's not that much of a leap when that kid turns 10 or 11 or 12 or 13 because he's already drawn to the internet, okay? So I keep saying he, he, he as if this is only a male issue. It's mostly a male issue in terms of visual pornography. Now, does that, is that to say that women would not be interested in that? No, there's women that are interested as well. But women easily get addicted to other things. It just doesn't happen to be necessarily the visual part, okay? So... It's real. It's real. And it's not anything that we ought to just say, oh, this is just a fad. You know, oh, this is just something to not take seriously. Okay? We have to take it seriously. So to have conversations with, for example, if you have a uh, 12 or 13-year-old male in your life, it, this is a good conversation to have. Okay? But it's also good to put these kind of things on your Devices like Covenant Eyes, for example, right? Trust but verify <laughs> to do that. It's also, if you have a daughter or a granddaughter, it's good to have this conversation because the guy that she's dating or interested in might, in fact, have a uh, fascination with pornography. And that will influence a person to become sexually active earlier than they should, i.e. when they're married. Which sounds so old-fashioned for me to say that, I know. But again, that's, the God's intent was pretty good. God had a pretty good idea of what is best for us. And that kind of comes down to it uh, uh, in terms of, do I know what's best for me or does God know what's best for me? And there's the battle right there. Okay? Yeah, Carl. Uh, yesterday, I gave my son-in-law a book. A book? And the title of Boy to Man Book. Mm -hmm. That's the title. And it's written by a pastor. Yeah. And it's based predominantly on Proverbs. Okay. Yeah. And uh, at the very end of it, at, at the, when you're all done, there's a ceremony called the Stones, the Five Stone Ceremony. Mm -hmm. And they deal with the five major integrity elements integrity, courage, faith, etc. Right. Loyalty. And uh, you have five. Friends, male friends, meet with the boy and uh -huh. go through those things. Wow, it's a really a great book. I'd recommend for anybody. And it's, and it's called what's it called AFA. again? Com. What's it called again? Boy to man. Boy to man. Okay, good. Thank you. It's a small book. Yeah, and this is not the exhaustive list of all the things that are out there and available, but um, those are the ones that I know about. Okay. All right. Anything else at this point? Okay. We. Oh, yeah, Dennis. Pastor, I was reading recently an article about pornography. Pardon? I was recently reading an article about pornography. Yes. In the industry. And two things really struck me about One is they said there's 150 pornography movies made every movie. Uh-huh. The second thing they said is that other industries are now studying the pornography industry to see whether it's successful. Oh, wow. So what he said was that... Um, the pornography industry is putting out 150 new movies per week and that other industries are now looking at the success of the pornography industry to say, we want to have the same success that you do and, so, and how are you doing it? So now they're consulting with other companies to uh, replicate that, um, their success. So just see, again, 
it sort of catches us by surprise in the sense that sometimes we think, oh, this is just some backroom deal that has no influence over anybody else in terms of what their, what their life choices are and the philosophy of which they look at life and all that kind of thing. And if we think that, we are kidding ourselves, okay? It, 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 it reminds us of the part of the Bible where it talks about the idea of the dark forces, right? That this isn't just a battle against flesh and blood, but it's a battle against the principalities of the world and the earth. And we certainly would say the devil's a big part of that. Drawing people away from what God's great plan was, you know? Yeah, one more and then we'll move on. Uh, the, uh, I'm thinking about something else um, uh, related to all this. And that is uh, the word commitment related to marriage versus this hooking up and all of this experimentation and so right. on. And, and, you know, people don't stop and think about that not only the, the physical health, right. because people who are hooking up and running around and becoming sexually promiscuous, mm -hmm. sometimes we forget that it causes the physical health. Sure. And many cancers come from sure. all the, the right. STDs and all of those things. All the physical people things. People carry with them throughout their lives, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then the the social and emotional. Right. That, you know, you get to deal with that a lot, as you say, with the couples mm -hmm. who are going through some of those kinds mm -hmm. of things. And, and parents, as a, in parenting, they find it very difficult to talk about these things with their 13 and 14 year old. And, it, and, and maybe all this explains why we have such a high divorce rate and another divorce rate when they remarry because they're not picking the right people. They're not um, taking the time to be parents and not just be friends. When it comes to a lot of these social issues that will affect them the rest of their lives. Sure, yeah. So is all of this unforgivable? No, that's the good news. That's the good news. It's not. Now, is it without consequence? No. See, so it, it there to some degree, you know, the in the church, we're sort of, uh, I, I want to say relegated, but it just works out that way that we're coming along after these decisions have been made. And, and so how do you, and, that, and that's part of the pastoral task, I think, in some sense, is you know, how do you support that person and how do you love that person and how do you influence that person from that point moving forward, given the fact that there's already some very profound decisions that have been made, some of which are life-changing, some of which involve addictions that now that person will be dealing with the rest of their life. Can they be victorious in doing that? Absolutely. But that will be a struggle. Absolutely. Okay. So it's just to, to, bring, to remember that we can bring mercy to bear. And, uh, you know, organized religion hasn't always been all that merciful when it comes to sexual issues and sexual comfort level with talking about it. You know, uh, a lot of people in my age group uh, didn't get the talk from our parents because it was just like, oh, boy, I don't what do I do with that? And maybe parents today are a bit more informed about how to do that. I think churches are way more, and ours included, is way more proactive in bringing some people in who are not the kid's parent, but certainly uh, gives a quality talk about the realities of sexuality. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Sometimes being a kid's parent gets in the way of that. And it's easier to hear it from somebody that's not your parent but certainly would be parent endorsed. And that's a good thing. Okay. All right. So now we go to marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Okay. So I'm looking at the clock, <laughs> hoping that hand will move faster than it actually is. No, no, I'm not. But I got to do second service. So that's why I'm, I'm trying to be conscious of the fact that in addition to the swain that Pastor Coleman does... <laughs> He also walks down the aisle a lot faster than I do, and I don't want to have to run after him. So I'm kind of thinking, here's what I'm kind of thinking is, what if we stop here rather than stopping in the middle? Because I don't want to stop in the middle. This is really, uh, this whole section on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, I think in many ways 
has been so misunderstood. It's been understood, but it's also been misunderstood in the sense that it's added a lot of extra guilt to people's lives, particularly if you get divorced and you are someone who was the victim of somebody else's abuse or somebody else's adultery, they got divorced. And some of these verses sort of make it sound like you're doomed forever to be uh, either single or you will be an adulterer the rest of your life. And it wasn't even your fault or your guilt. And so I don't want to, I don't want to stop in the middle of that and say, okay, come back next week. That would be sort of cruel for me to do that, wouldn't it? I should do that. That would be a good idea. All right. So we'll stop here and then we'll pick it up here next week. And then we'll, we'll still go into the, uh, talking about the uh, marriage in terms of, uh, how you, how you do a 50 year marriage, marriage happily. So that's the, that's what we'll talk about. Okay. Can we do that? Is that Okay. All right, great. Let's close a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for the way that your word speaks to us in a very plain way, but a very powerful way. Our, it seems that our, our culture today, our world today is, is so confused. People are just kind of running all over the place thinking that they know what's best for them uh, and, and that it doesn't include you. And that certainly shows up in uh, people's choices about sexuality people's decisions that they make about uh, marriage and all those kinds of things. But we're thankful that your word is the foundation for our lives and that by sticking, uh, building our lives on the foundation, that then we have not only access to the power of that foundation, but we're also reminded each and every day that we are your beloved. So dear Lord, as your beloved uh, challenge us this week, uh, as we live in a world that is anything but beloved as we uh, encounter people who definitely don't feel beloved, help us to be the voice of the beloved as we, uh, as we go out from this place and seek to serve you. Watch over us, dear Lord, until we're together again, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com, where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.